Welcome to the Sports Science Dudes. I'm your host, Dr. Jose Antonio, with my inimitable co-host, Dr. Tony Ricci. If you're a first-time listener, hit the subscribe button and like the show because it's an awesome show. Uh, we're on YouTube, Rumble, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Um, our special guest today is uh, James L. Nuzzo. Is it Nuzzo or Nuzzo? Uh, in the U.S., we would say Nuzzo. In Italy, you'd probably say Nuzzo. Nuzzo. Oh, All Nuzzo. right. Yes. Okay, well. Well, Tony's Italian, so I guess my parents were born there. Yes. <laughs> um, a little bit about James. He got his BS um, in exercise science from Slippery Rock in PA, MS in exercise science from Appalachian State. Um, actually, I knew a few people there at one point, and a PhD in physiology at the University of New South Wales in Australia. He's currently an adjunct senior lecturer in the School of Medical and Health Sciences at Edith Cohen University in Australia. He's the author of over 70 peer-reviewed research articles and the founder of the Nuzzo Letter. I don't, I'm not sure I can't do Italian. Uh, on Substack. Substack's a great place to go get some cool stuff. He's also active on Twitter at James L. Nuzzo. Uh, and you can find him also on his website, jameslnuzzo.com. That's jameslnuzzo.com. So, hey, welcome to the Sports Science News, James. Um, first of all, glad to meet you online. We've sort of our paths have sort of crossed through the NSCA and whatnot. Um, I went to your Spotify channel, and that's really what piqued my interest because you talk about a lot of things, and I don't know what it's like in Australia, but you talk about a lot of issues that are almost kind of taboo, even within academia, which, you know, and academia used to be, hey, the bastion of free speech. Now it's the bastion of censorship. You got to have the, the right narrative and say the correct things which is the anathema of university. So that's really what piqued my interest. Um, but I want to start off first with what I would call the initial passion and love I had for science, and that's skeletal muscle plasticity. And we had a guest, it was like a few weeks back, who said that there are no fiber type differences between men and women. And, and I know, and it, it had been a while since I looked at the literature, and I thought, wow, that just seems odd because I had always thought men probably have more type 2A, 2X, and women obviously more type 1, both in number and in cross-sectional area. Yeah. You have, your website actually is great. It has a lot of great information. You actually, you know, talked a little bit about those fiber type differences. Tell the audience what you found. Yeah, so through my other related research, I was trying to find that information. So I was hoping there'd be some big review paper out there, a big meta-analysis that would just have put all the data together and summarized it uh, nicely for a dummy like myself. <laughs> and what I realized is that no one had really done that. So um, if you look back through the literature, you will find a couple of examples where, um, so there's one paper by Sandra Hunter, uh, and then there's another one by Starin from years ago, where they took a small bit of the existing literature and put it together. And it served as just sort of a supplementary point to their larger paper that they were writing. And that was all that I could find in terms of people trying to bring all the literature together on uh, muscle fiber types between men and women. Um, and I wrote a narrative review paper where I it, for me, again, it was it was a supplementary sort of thing within a larger paper. And I'm like, you know what? Um, someone needs to really try to do this more formally and properly. So that's what led to my meta-analysis on this, where I just did an absolute deep dive in trying to retrieve um, any paper, any study I could find that reported um, muscle fiber type data in both uh, a male cohort and a female cohort within the same study. Roughly how um, many papers would that have been? Oh, gosh. Um, off the top of my head, what are we talking here? Um, what was it? 100, 200? It's, it's over 100. I can't even recall off the top oh, of my head. It is over 100, though. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so um, so my main goal was just to... So I, I, I like history, and I love finding old papers just buried in the literature and bringing them back to life. So my primary purpose was to get all these resources into at least one place. And then the second purpose was to actually do the analysis and find out if there is a difference. Um, because it was, from, from these other little mini reviews, 
it was pretty clear that there was a difference in the sort of proportional area that a certain fiber type takes up, but it wasn't clear whether there was a difference in the proportional representation mm -hmm. of different fibers. So they're two slightly different outcomes. Um, what my meta-analysis found was it confirmed that the proportional area measurement is different. Now, these effect sizes aren't uh, huge, but they're about moderate size. So men tend to have more of the type two, um, uh, let me put it this way, more of their muscle cross-sectional area is composed of an area of type two muscle fibers, whereas women's muscle tends to be comprised of more of an area of type one muscle fibers. Um, and then that measure of sort of proportional representation in terms of numbers also tends to be uh, different in that same direction. So basically men tend to have a greater area of their muscle comprised of type two uh, uh, muscle fibers. Uh, when, you, when you take the type two to type one ratio, that becomes um, significantly different as well. And the whole point of the paper is to say, look, this is another factor that might uh, contribute some to some degree between the, the sex difference in muscle power and muscle strength. Right. Do, do you know, uh, do you recall the percentage? If we looked at number, a fiber number, do you, do you recall what the percentage was of one versus two in men and women? Was it, was it something like 50 something percent men type two and maybe women were like a lower 50% or? Yeah, it's it's not a huge um, difference. So I, off the top of my head, I'm not gonna be able to give it to you. I'd have to pull up the paper really quickly, but we're talking only a difference of, I think it was like 5%, okay. 4 or 5%. Um, and that's what I'm saying. I'm not sure how much it actually contributes to the, like the sex difference in strength and power, but there's definitely enough consistency there to be some small difference between men and women. And uh, can I just ask a quick question, James, do, is there anything that we might see regionally? Like, uh, are we focusing on a specific region of the body? Uh, like, might it be more prominent in lower extremity? Do we know or upper extremity or the? Yep. So the, the vast majority of these data, I think it's somewhere like 75% came from vastus lateralis. Okay, great. Um, that's just because it's the uh, muscle that's, I guess, easiest um, right. to biopsy. Uh, full the disclosure here, I've, I've never actually done a biopsy myself mm -hmm. or um, uh, had one taken of me, but vastus lateralis is the one that people take. Um, and, and really, when you think about the conclusion of that paper, I would say basically just think of it as specific to vastus lateralis because it just it right. takes up so much of that data. Um, there are some biopsy, I guess the, the next most frequently um, sampled muscle is probably uh, the low back muscles, uh, the mm -hmm. back extensors. We didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, there because there was an interest in whether or not fiber type actually correlates with uh, back pain. Uh, that was more in like the 1990s, early wow. 2000s. Um, a little bit from the gastroc, tibialis anterior, biceps, triceps, but, but very small numbers of, okay. um, of studies there. Great. Yeah, there's some old data in bodybuilders. I think McDougal did some stuff looking at delts, deltoid, um, yeah, triceps, I think. But, um, but yeah, it's uh, vastus lateralis seems to be one of the favorites because <laughs> it's, it's such a big muscle. It's easy to, you know, get a little bit of tissue out of there. When I was in grad school, uh, I, uh, I was at the University of Texas um, Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, and I never did a biopsy, but I always volunteered myself to get biopsied. And there was a physician friend of mine, like, like up on the eighth floor, I'm like, hey, I want to come up. Could you buy, you know, take a chunk out of my tib anterior because I want to fiber type myself? He's like, yeah, sure. Just don't tell anyone. Just come on up. And so he'd, buy, he'd, he'd get a biopsy out of my tib anterior. He did my deltoid too. In fact, the deltoid, I was curious in this, sorry for the sidebar, but I wanted to see if I had higher androgen receptor levels because I had I had a sort of a cohort of human data and I found out I was highly average, which was very disappointing. So <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I went through all that pain. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm average. 
Um, but anyways, that was my foray into being biopsied. But um, but I always found I always found the fiber type stuff to be fascinating. For the type two, for the type two data, was it split up into two A two X? Because I'm wondering, I would imagine two X is kind of rare in people, but yeah, no, I I do split it up. Um, I do split it up like that. And yeah, so there's the sex differences, no, no matter which way you split up the type two uh, fibers. All right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, switching over from skeletal muscle plasticity, and this is really what interested me, was your, your, uh, uh, your podcast on Spotify uh, dealing with, the title was Female Exercise Scientists and the Failure to Protect Women's Sports, i.e. transgender uh, transgender women or biological males competing in female sports. How, and and correct me if if the gist of what I got from it is incorrect. Um, that you don't hear many female exercise scientists speaking against it. It's mostly men, and that again, that's just me looking on social media to see who talks about it. Um, could you comment on that and why you think that's happening? Yeah. Um, so a little bit of a side note here. I also do work in men's health, and this kind of ties into a lot of what we see going on with men's health narratives about men and masculinity and all sorts. Of, so this is come. This is my sort of background here, and what I found quite shocking was it, it sort of relates back to my concerns over uh, feminism and feminist epistemology, which is really when we talk about um, uh, the universities some of these ideas that come from the humanities are really destroying the universities and they are coming in to schools of medical and health sciences. And this is kind of tied up in, in all that. So um, there are great efforts um, put forward by universities now to accelerate the, the trajectories of the careers of women in academia. I suspect this is happening both in the in the U.S., um, I, I do check social media and stuff there. It's happening in Australia, and um, one thing that I found surprising because there are many graduates of exercise science programs who are women. In fact, um, they comprise in the U.S. about fifty-five percent of all bachelor degrees graduates are women. So, in theory, there should be a large cohort of women who learn about physiology and how it impacts uh, sports performance and um, athletics and so on and so forth. But there has been almost no discussion other than like two uh, review papers over the past couple of years about concerns about <laughs> differences between men and women and their physiology and how that might impact this narrative. And I find that really strange because um, in exercise and sports science, we have so much of what I call minutiae that is published. So these small little increments in knowledge about things that aren't particularly relevant to a lot of people, like whether there's a difference in reliability of the isometric mid-thigh pole at 145 degree angle versus 150, <laughs> right? Now, I'm happy for those things to be studied and fair enough, but that's not a huge increment in knowledge or in discussion as a whole. But hey, someone, topic, hey James, someone has to have a master's thesis. Come on. That's right. And that's <laughs> that's what's happening. Right, but right. we have we have a very like substantial issue on our hands right now, which is getting a lot of attention in the media. People are looking for answers, unsure what to think. This is where the intellectuals in society should come in and inform people of what, what the research is and the different um, ways that you can look at different issues. And exercise scientists, particularly women, completely silent for the past however many years. It is so strange because we have so many graduates. Um, we have so many journals that you can publish in now. There's various Substack pages. And they aren't saying a word. And right. that to me is an absolute failure of being a sort of intellectual in society. When you are needed most to provide um, some opinion, which could uh, cause some blowback on you, 
Mm-hmm. You have to do that. That's what your role in society is yes. meant to be. But you're failing. And instead, you're, and I'm just picking the isometric mid-thigh pole thing as an example. I don't mean to take a shot at those individuals. That's, that's Tony's favorite exercise. Come on. Well, I have tested on it quite a bit because I work with a lot of grapplers and wrestlers, but that's quite okay, James. <laughs> there's there's just many kidding. different examples of right. this where, you know, we're just, it's taking time to study these very minor things, yet we have a huge issue. And we're also at the same time told uh, uh, these women that go on to careers in academia, they're so strong and brave and courageous and all the rest of it. Where are they? They're not even protecting their own sport. And right. so the podcast that I did was trying to explain why this is happening and, and, um, just yeah, providing sort of a different opinion that you're not going to hear many people express. Yeah, there. It's interesting. Um, well, obviously you've all, you've lived in the U.S. most of your life, not Australia. Um, is it similar in terms of the, the attitudes from academia? It's similar. It yeah, yeah. It's we're in a weird, you know, sort of socio-cultural time where. Um, I guess for a lot of a lot of academics, you know, whether they're female or male exercise scientists or just scientists in general, I think a lot of them make the pragmatic choice of, okay, we know the obvious. <laughs> we all took biology. If I climb, comment on it, there might be blowback. There might be social media blowback, but I think what they're worried about is actually blowback from the university. I think so, yeah. Which which now affects their ability to, you know be gainfully employed. It might affect their family and whatnot. I mean, I can tell you my personal experience where just comments I made about transgender athletes was I got holy hell for that. And to me, I was just sort of speaking the obvious. It's like, well, no, these are guys. These are not women. You you can identify as whatever you want, but when you're six foot three and you're built like a middle linebacker from the Green Bay Packers, I'm sorry, you're, you're a guy. Um, but I think, cause I have a lot of friends who, uh, who certainly see sort of what is obvious to our eyes. I mean, our eyes don't lie. Our eyes don't lie. But we're in this weird cultural time where it's, you know, things that are obvious are, you know, it's 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 frowned upon to speak because um, I guess because we're not being inclusive, which which to me is an odd choice of words because you're literally excluding women. And, you know, you think women would be the most vocal uh, uh, proponents of this. And obviously you have a few female athletes like Riley Gaines. Um, you have Martina Navratilova who clearly is against us. And even, um, um, Caitlyn Jenner has spoken out against, you know, you know, transgender women in women's sports. So, um, I mean, I don't know if there's a solution to it. I know, I know our circle in exercise and sports science, let me give you a a short sidebar. Uh, someone gave a talk at the society for sports neuroscience. Uh, Tony was there. And she basically outlined all of the sex differences. And some of them are profound, like they're huge. And before she gave the talk, she prefaced it by saying, this is controversial, blah, 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 blah. You might get canceled. And at the end of the talk, an exercise physiologist raised her hand and said, I don't, what part of this is controversial? We've kind of known this for 50 years. Actually, one of our young students asked that. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, wait, this is controversial that men and women are physically different. So to these exercise science students, they were kind of puzzled, like, why <laughs> we're actually giving a talk on male-female physical differences in sports. And I think the challenge is a lot of people misconstrue it as it's it's a it's a moral indictment on women when it's not. It's not a moral indictment. It's just you're just talking physiology. And apparently yes. physiology now can be misconstrued as. Now you're making a general attack on an entire category of people, i.e. women, which, you know, is is ridiculous. So thoughts on that? Yeah, well, how I I explain this um, in my podcast is I call it the sort of uh, the feminist conundrum, the female exercise scientist um, conundrum, which is um, so and this gets back to my background a little bit in sex differences and so on. So women on the average tend to have more of an orientation toward inclusivity in Mm -hmm. egalitarianism. That's what personality research has shown over the years. So they are much more um, just sort of 
I think biologically driven for whatever reason to be concerned about things like community and so on. You see more women are active in community health programs and, and all of that. So they have this sort of inclusivity thing to them, sort of built into them, concern. Well, here they're in a conundrum because inclusivity could mean the destruction of their space for sport. Um, but if they say, okay, for this one time, I'm not going to worry about the inclusivity thing, then they also, then on the other hand, they have to then acknowledge that sex differences exist in physical performance. Now, you and I know those things exist because we, we are quite serious about studying exercise physiology and muscle strength and all the rest of it. But there are some academics out there that believe that sex differences and physical performance are um, socially constructed. So it's because um, girls and women haven't been uh, given the same opportunities to participate in uh, sport and weight training. They haven't been coached the same way that men have. So um, yeah, they're, they're sort of caught in this conundrum where um, it, it, if they say they need a safe space, then they have to admit that sex differences exist and they're probably not socially constructed. Um, on the other hand, if they go with the inclusivity thing um, and presumably participation in women's sports would decline, then they mm -hmm. would be held responsible for that decline, right. which is basically a reversal to the past and everything that old feminists used to, to fight for. So they're caught in this conundrum. And that's why I say they're not saying anything um, uh, there's multiple reasons, but I, I think that's um, that's part of it. And it's actually somewhat um, now I, I personally don't care. I'm the, I'm the sort that would talk about it um, in a paper or something, but it puts men in a weird position to be the ones to to challenge yourself because we tend to be more disagreeable um, in academic literature. We write most of the letters to the editor where we call people out. That's mo mostly a male domain. And I've documented that in my research. But if a man comes out and, and starts to talk about this stuff, it's easier to dump on him because he's privileged and all the rest of that narrative. So, um, yeah, it's it's good to see that some of these women are stepping up. I think that's mm -hmm. basically what needs um, to happen. I just don't know why more aren't kind of following uh, following along, particularly from the the academic community. That's who I'm really calling out. Mm -hmm. Sandra Hunter is, is one um, person who has published on this recently with Michael Joyner and a few others. She is, she should be the person leading the charge. Um, so it was good to see that she came out with a paper just a, um, a couple of months ago, and hopefully others will kind of follow off of her lead. If, if I may, Joey and James, and, and this is pertaining to it, um, and you are far more well-versed, James, on the, you know, some of the social arguments as to why women may not be on that equal plane. Uh, well, I don't say equal plane, but just don't have some of the, I would sport the physical power in strength equally in that capacity only, right? But the one argument we get from the general population all the time, and we can't go into great depth, it would be four episodes, but the argument you see all the time is, okay, well, this given athlete that has made the transition as a human, which is wonderful if that's what you want to do as a human being, but they have now transitioned uh, as a male into female sports. And the argument we always get in justification is, well, you know, their testosterone level now is super, super, super low. And what we don't, what I think one of the arguments, not that the sports scientists or female or male exercise scientists is missing, but the general population is under the assumption that as long as the testosterone level diminishes to a certain point, there aren't three, 400 or other multitude of factors that are contributing to the potential advantages in sports performance. And I'm not asking for that whole list, but it is correct. Am I right? Uh, most of it's set in stone, even if the testosterone level has declined significantly, and just maybe one or two other factors that might contribute to performance differences that go beyond testosterone, right? Uh, mm -hmm. What may they be? Yeah, so I, I think that that's what Sandra Hunter and Michael Joyner try to address oh, um, in, in their Great. review paper. There's another one 
we don't, I guess, at this point, have too many studies where we look at people who have gone on sort of gender affirming treatments yes. and how does that impact their performance. So that data is still coming in. But I would say, and, and I and I am not an, an expert on testosterone um, at all. I'm sure you guys know much more about it um, than I do. But I think, I mean, if if someone goes through um, puberty and, and gets sort of the the kind of benefits of that. Right. I mean, I just don't, I don't, I mean, you, you can't reverse someone's body height, for example, uh, the, the size of their bone, right? So mm -hmm. that's just a very crude example, but there, I think there are just certain things you're not going to be able to reverse and things that would be sort of set a little bit more set in stone that you're going to have um, a particular advantage of. And, you know, another thing that's not ever talked about is just what going through puberty as a man uh, does in terms of your psychology. So we know that men on the average are more um, competitive. They enjoy challenge more. And that's something I think will have to be teased out a bit um, later. I think sort of the physical and physiology stuff is some of the first, but I mean, I, I've, I've been around a lot of men. You guys have been a lot around a lot of men. Like yeah. it, I, I, I'm, I am convinced, and this is no dig at women in women's sports. I know it's very important to them and I understand. And I, and I've worked with some female athletes before, but, but for men, you know, our status is oftentimes tied to things um, uh, related to our sports performance and right. ability to be the, the strongest one uh, around our, our mates, right. The biggest oh, yeah. one. And, and, I think there's a lot of psychology there where it means more to us and we're willing to go and take the extra hit and punishment and deliver the extra blow in the game and all that. And so that's a whole other aspect of this that's also not being addressed is would, would, would gender affirming treatment actually change that particular male drive for lack of a better term that exists psycho um, psychologically? And I'm not, I'm not sure, but it's something that should also be discussed at some point. It's a great point that I've not even considered yet. Yep. Yeah, you know, I gave a uh, a talk on uh, on sex differences in track and field, and and basically I just took data that was online. You could go to USA Track and Field or World. Uh, there's a bunch of websites that list records, and I covered. I looked at data on the 100, 200. I basically went through everything: 400, 800, uh, 15, 3,000 steeple chase, 5K, 10K. And all the field events, you know, shot, put, pole vault, et cetera. And there is a, it's consistent that by age 15, elite boys, high school boys are already better than the best woman in history. So take the best, in fact, take the 100 meter dash, best woman in history. I think, I hope I'm right. Florence Joyner Griffith still holds that record. I a 10, think. I, it's a 10, five, four, I think. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I think it might even be faster now. I think it's a 10, four, nine, but. 10, four, nine. You're correct. I'm sorry. 10, four, nine. Um, was the you can literally doctor. go to South Florida and find 15 boys that run faster in high school. So imagine multiplying that by the number of high school boys in the world. And what a lot of people don't understand is going through puberty, gives such a huge performance advantage for males that even if they decide to transition when they're 18, 19, or 20, they already have denser bones, wider skeleton, narrower hips. Um, they have all of these physical advantages that just don't disappear. I don't care how much testosterone drops. It doesn't eliminate that. And what's crazy is that this debate has, seems to always fall on, well, testosterone is low now. So now, uh, you know, now a transgender uh, a female can compete with women. Well, no, testosterone is just one part of it. It's a tiny part of it. So I just wanted to get that out there because a lot of people don't understand. First of all, yep. no Americans follow track and field except maybe me and like five people. So, <laughs> I love track and field. I'm oh, the floor. Yeah. Right. So when I talk about track and field, people's eyes, they, they like you glass over and like, yeah, sure, whatever. Let's talk about football, basketball, and baseball. But so, so I wanted to get well, that out there. I, I know. I think it's really, this is what is missing is people like yourself been in the field for many, many years, um, very well respected coming out and talking about it. And, you know, it's, it's just strange that, you know, media don't really, you know, seek out opinions from people right like, you, you know, the New York times should be calling you up Jose saying, Hey, can you tell us what, what is going on here? Give us this breakdown. Um, I don't know that major exercise science organizations are holding, um, special sessions on this topic i don't think they are i think they're probably they would probably be afraid to i don't know i didn't go to 
um, I haven't gone to NSCA National Conference in many years, but um, it, it should be something that's talked about. Otherwise, <laughs> the, the knowledge never gets transmitted and people that have the strongest voices um, end up sort of winning. So I guess, yeah, uh, yeah. conference presentations, papers, yeah, anything. Yep. I think one of the arguments I've heard against it, Joey and James, is that the numbers are just not enough yet. Like, like it's not, you see, I'm not saying whether or not that's true, right? I'm just saying, oh, oh this is one in every, take track and field as an example. If there are 500 high school, uh, 100 meters events for females on a given day, it's only, there are only two people doing this, right? Or two individuals that have, transition doing it. So I, I'm not saying that is a suitable argument, but it is one that I've heard when I take a look at some of the commentary. Oh, well, why are you worried? It's one in a thousand events for the female athlete. But when it is a significant event, such as the swimming event with uh, Riley, right? What was that? The Was that the 100 meter or 200 meter? I think, Joey? Yeah, yeah I don't but, remember the distance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nevertheless, then, then it, it does have, ha, does have an impact. And I, and I think it's something that we, we should address and just have this great discussion about what are the multitude of factors that impact this. So I agree. I agree. Yeah. I want to, uh, if you don't mind switch over to, and this is a topic I actually have never really thought about, but when I read your abstract, um, it got me thinking in the title of your paper, it's a review, review paper you wrote called uh, Men's Health in the United States and National Health Paradox. And every time I see the word paradox, I have to read it. So um, <laughs> I'm just going to read the first couple sentences. A health paradox exists in the United States. Men have worse health outcomes than women, but national offices exist for promoting women's health, but not men's health. For instance, there's always the uh, health uh, South Florida. There's always a breast cancer, you know, run or whatever. Uh, but there's not a prostate cancer run, not that I would run, even if it was a prostate cancer, but, but you don't see, you don't see an emphasis on men's health, despite the fact that I think in the aggregate, well, first of all, we don't live as long. That's one. And two, I think, I don't know if we're worse off, you might be better, you know, at, at, at addressing that or is, is men's health that much worse than women's health, at least in America, in the United States. Yeah. It, it sort of depends what sort of outcome you want to look at. So if you look at life expectancy, um, so life expectancy uh, in males is lower than females yeah. in every single country in the world. So that's one thing. No, there's, there's no exceptions to that. Um, in the United States, it is currently a six-year difference in life expectancy. Mm -hmm. Um then you then you sort of dive into particular outcomes and and try to explain why that difference exists um and there are many different reasons um some of them men are more likely to commit suicide men are much more likely to to die in accidents so at uh, occupational wow. work accidents Perfect. drownings motor vehicle accidents um, men are more likely to use and abuse alcohol, um, uh, drugs of various kinds. They're also more at risk for um, a bunch of other um, conditions. The point that I'm making in that, um, that particular paper is, yes, we don't have this same sort of network or concern over men's health in terms of like at a sort of institutional level. So mm -hmm. if you if you think that these institutional things make a difference, uh, which they may or may not, then it's a bit strange that we don't have this for men's health when men have a much shorter life expectancy and all these other issues, which are quite apparent, like I said, uh, suicide and, and so on. Um, I'll just give you one example that I mentioned in that paper, which is in the U.S., there is, um, through the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, there is an office for research on women's health, um, and that was founded in 1990 through legislation, and it was actually founded on something that would probably be of interest to you guys, which is there was this claim that uh, women were underrepresented as participants in clinical research trials. So mm -hmm. the idea was, oh, we don't have enough information on women, they're being underrepresented, we're not studying them enough. It turns out a couple of years later, an independent organization 
looked into that claim and found that it was actually false. It was, it was never true, but the, this office for research on women's health was founded. It still exists um, today, which, okay, fair enough. I'm very happy for women to be researched and studied. I want them to live great and healthy lives. Wait, wait, no, this is interesting because I've never heard this before. So this is, you're, you're going back to the 1990s and there was already data there to show that female participation as as research subjects yep it wasn't less than male participation and yep. and the question is would this be in i assume the biological sciences is is that yep so it would be nih uh, funded research okay it's, yeah so prior to that time and, so, and but, but now as part of nih funded research then because of this legislation that was passed in the early 90s you are now meant to record uh, to work to um, to recruit. It, it sort of depends on your study design, and I think there is um, uh, y- there can be reasons where you might not do this, but you basically need to try to recruit equal numbers of male and female participants. And the Office for Research on Women's Health uh, reports each year the proportion of male and female participants in NIH funded projects. So they report this every year. And every year, it's usually um, about 55% female participants and 45% male. Wow, that's surprising. It it is always in favor of females. So sometimes it's as high as 60% female participants and 40% males. Um, But the point that I make in that paper and a bunch of my other papers now is um, look, we're all very happy and want women's health to be to be great and grand. Right. But actually, if you look at a lot of the data, it's clear and it ties into the transgender sports talk. So one of the things that I mentioned about that whole um, debate is we are actually overlooking the fact that there are many boys and men who are struggling with gender identity issues. These are these are mainly boys and men where this is becoming a problem. Mm-hmm. Yet we just sort of pass that off as not being anything. We we we're can just we're concerned. Oh, how are they impacting women's sports and blah blah blah. I'm concerned about that too. But let's take a step back and what's going on here. There are some boys and men that are quite. They're struggling. These individuals typically do not have very good um, um, health outcomes, psychological health. I think um, transgender individuals are more prone to suicide. If I'm not mistaken, I'm not. I'm an expert in that area, but. So what I'm getting at is we tend to, there's actually a a theory around this, it's called gamma bias. Um, And there is some psychological literature supporting this where we don't see suffering and disadvantage in men the same way that we see it in women. And that is why at an institutional level, we tend to put all these resources into women, women's health, advancing women's careers, where at the same time, we're we're not really paying attention to men. In fact, at the same time, we have dangerous narratives about men. So we have things like male privilege, toxic masculinity, and these are all sort of um, stigmatizing men um, in a in a certain way, which is mm-hmm. definitely not putting resources toward right. um, helping them. Men's health. And, and one just one quick thought too, and this is really interesting to me. And I think to your point earlier, James, though, because maybe. As men, we don't have that community spirit. We don't do enough for ourselves, right? Like Susan Susan G. Komen rightfully found the breast cancer walk and the runs. And we don't hear, you know, but now I see a handful of guys that maybe they had um, a a father pass away, God forbid, a prostate cancer, and they are having those walks. So maybe I think the lack of community efforts amongst men. And by the way, we're a little, you know, I think another issue is you can correct me if I'm wrong regarding protecting our own health. If I don't have an arrow entering in the front of my liver and exiting the back through the outside, I'm not going to the doctor. I think I've had one physical in 22 years. Oh my God. Yeah, that's true. So so my point is if, if there is something wrong and I think we have to change that as men, it's probably more advanced than me than it might be in the female because I think they're better at stewarding their health and having those checkups. Might I be correct there too? As a better words, as men, I think we better be a little bit more proactive in getting those community groups together and taking care of our own health and not shrugging it off as much. 
Yep. So there's um, quite a bit of evidence that men are less likely to engage in healthcare seeking. So in terms of just going to the doctor right. and so on. And, and I'm actually someone that doesn't really like um, going to the doctor um, <laughs> right. either. because A lot of times I actually think they don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, and uh, but it, it, it is um, it is a, a, a sex difference that's been shown many times that men are less likely to seek help when they need it. So one of the things that's going on right now in sort of the male psychology um, movement, which is sort of an emerging movement, is to come up with more male friendly treatments. So, for example, um, psych the the way that psychological counseling is done is you sort of go into an office, you sit across the desk or in a chair next to the counselor, and you're meant to talk about your feelings. Well, it's pretty clear that women are much more open to that idea and are better at doing that than men. Okay, so let's think, is, is there a different or alternative strategy where we can actually get men to do a little bit more talking? So it's not that men don't benefit from talking about their, their feelings, they do, but it's this particular environment I think that men find a bit strange. So what's emerging now is the idea of male-friendly therapy where men tend to be a bit more action-oriented. So in Australia, there's um, what's called men's sheds that are emerging. And these are just like workshops where blokes get together and they just start, they start building stuff. So they want to work on some project, they go and they work on something. But the idea is that um, men will talk more, but usually they have to be like a little bit distracted working on something. So you might, you might be like, at the, maybe even at the gym or something, you might um, be in between sets with your mate. And you might just start to talk a little bit about uh, about the wife and like some frustrations you're having or something like that. Or maybe your dad recently passed away. And so so this is something that is emerging right now, which I think is actually a really um, good idea. And it's meant to make things, I guess, look a little bit different for men. Maybe they would be more likely to uh, seek help um, if they felt a little bit more comfortable with what they were getting into and, and thought it was a bit more friendly because right now, I mean, it's a really dangerous situation. We, we have um, feminist academic departments, gender studies departments saying all these negative things about men, the male privilege and all that. And a lot of guys are just looking around. They're like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I've got to work my ass off every day going yeah. to work um, in these really bad work conditions what do you mean I'm privileged? I'm bringing in a, you know, pretty low salary. And, and um, yeah, so we don't really have a sort of a, a positive view on men and masculinity right now. And I don't think that's yeah. particularly good for men wanting to actually seek help. Because if, if, if you're just sort of an average bloke right now, and you, you know that some therapist or psychologist has a PhD or something, I would I would be very skeptical of that person. I'd be like, wait a minute, what what did they learn in that university? Because I see all this stuff coming out from university now, which is not very friendly to me. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go see that person. I point. don't trust I don't I don't trust them with my data. I don't trust mm -hmm. them with my personal feelings. Yeah. Oh yeah, some of the nuttiest ideas uh, emerge from academia. I I would agree with you on that. And yeah, and I, when I see guys in you know, in the middle of summer in South Florida on the roof, you know, doing stuff on the roof, sweating their butts off. Yeah, there's no privilege there. I don't think I'd want to work on a roof in South Florida in the middle of summer. Um, it's funny you said, you know, you don't trust physicians. My father was a physician and he he basically his motto was um, the most the dumbest people he's ever met are the ones that are most educated. He, he was constantly bitching and moaning about medicine, um, about fellow physicians. But yeah. Unlike Tony, here's here's what I did. When at age 18, and I'm I'm 60 now, I uh, I decided I'm going to go uh, see a doctor every year. I'm going to get a checkup, but I'm going to get my blood work done. So I literally have data from age 18 to age 60 wow. every year. My blood work because I figured I when I was in college, I'm like maybe I'll write a paper of me when I'm like 80 or something, and I literally have that data. But here's the funny part: my blood work never changes except get this, Tony. You're going to laugh. My my triglycerides tend to be high 
And the only way I can fix it is by eating less rice. Now you could you could come up with some of the Asian jokes now, Tony, if you want. But <laughs> when I when I cut back I'm a rice on rice, loving jelly, so. <laughs> when I cut back on rice, triglycerides drop. I'm like, oh, and that's the only thing that changes it. It doesn't matter if I do high carb, you know, or high protein, low protein. It changes nothing. So I literally have you know 30 or 40 years of data on me. And when I go to a physician, they never believe me. I'm like, it's just rice. They're like, well, your triglycerides are. I'm like, I know it's rice. I don't worry about it. But but anyways, uh, James, could we hold you over for like just five more minutes? Because there's one more topic I want to cover, which I think is kind of funny. Yeah, sure. It's the case for retiring flexibility as a major component of physical wow. fitness. And yeah. what's interesting is when students, students have been asking me about what I thought of flexibility, probably for the last 10, 20 years I've been teaching. And my flippant answer is like, it's a waste of time, unless, unless you're in a sport where extreme range of motion is needed. Gymnastics, martial arts, ballet. Uh, Other than that, I'm like, why are you working on flexibility? Why? So give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, okay. So how the idea for this paper um, started was I was actually working on a paper um, about muscle strength. And um, I I found an old paper in MSSC, which... um, was correlating different fitness variables with mortality, like early mortality. And it was interesting that they didn't find a correlation between flexibility levels and earlier mortality. And that's kind of strange because it's not really difficult to find certain fitness variables that would correlate with earlier mortality, um, like muscle strength, cardiovascular endurance, and all this. strength, yeah, right. Yeah, heaps of evidence. And and that was the sort of literature I was going through at that moment. And I just saw it was just kind of in like a random uh, table. I was like, that's really interesting. So I did a little bit more searching around and I found one other paper that also found that flexibility was not correlated with earlier mortality. Okay, so now I and I came back, I came from that strength and conditioning background um, in sort of the early mid 2000s, where um, you know, the literature showing, you know, s- stretching acutely decreased your force output and all that. So I, and, and I'm a strength training guy and I have that bias. Um, so I started to take a little bit deeper dive and take a look, you know, what, what about like cross-sectional data? So if you take different groups of athletes, what, what's their flexibility lo- levels look like? Um, if you look at correlational data, does flexibility correlate with other health outcomes? So maybe, maybe it doesn't correlate with more early mortality, but maybe it correlates with, I don't know, something else, cardiovascular disease or something. It turns out it doesn't really correlate with a whole lot that's important. And, <laughs> and I've, I just found that really intriguing. And then you look at the athlete data and um, there were these really interesting examples in the literature where the researchers were just really struggling to just come around to say it. And, and um, it, it was an example of a paper done in like elite lacrosse players or something. And they were measured. It was a profiling study. They had the, the, the players versus control participants, measured them on fitness variables. And the only one that the players scored worse on than the controls was their like sit and reach test performance. And instead of using that as evidence to say, oh, flexibility maybe isn't all that important, they said, these players should really work on their flexibility. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? They are elite level. They're like the most physically fit humans on the planet. <laughs> this, this is sort of suggesting that this flexibility thing, maybe not as important as we used to think. So my paper was just going through a lot of that evidence saying that um, basically I was trying, um, I say major component of physical fitness. So it's not that right, I think it's right. completely irrelevant, but basically that it should be kind of demoted or de-emphasized, at least within the framework of like the current ACSM guidelines where they have flexibility sort of up there with muscle strength, cardiovascular endurance, body composition. I'm like, no, it does not correlate with health outcomes as much as those other components. It needs to be demoted. Um, And then I also go on to explain, look, if you're someone that really likes flexibility and really likes stretching, if for your personal workouts, just go for it. Like do what you love. And if that's what gets you to the gym to do other things, like get on the treadmill, lift some weights, great, go for it. But let's stop pretending that it's like super, super important, particularly in a society where 
overweight and obesity is becoming increasingly a problem, those individuals do not need to be static stretching. They, they need to be physically active. They need to be walking or running or lifting weights. Stretching is not going to help them. It might help from maybe a mental health perspective if if they, I don't know, it makes them sort of a bit more relaxed or eases stress. Mm-hmm. But that is not the way that stretching is currently framed within recommendations. It's framed from a perspective of the purpose of stretching is to improve your flexibility. Um, but if anything, I think its benefits could also actually be a bit more mental health wise more than anything else. Because you're, it's the act of doing something. I guess it would be sure. people who do yoga. They feel right. better after they do yoga or Pilates or, or Tai Chi or whatever. So yeah, um, that's right. Tony, do you have any final thoughts? Because this has been a super fascinating conversation with James. It, it, you know, and, and to your credit, James, we were kind of playing ping pong on so many different topics because of your knowledge. And it's so well-versed, but no, the, uh, fascinating. You've you've helped, uh, I think, me, my listeners, even Joey, dive into a lot of topics that were not even yet considered. So it, this has been wonderful. And, and somehow or another, we got to follow this up. We've got a lot more to talk about. I've re- I really, really enjoyed this. And your questions yeah. and the direction in which you're leading us, excellent. Really, yeah. really great stuff. Yeah, James, I do want to mention our, our guest, uh, our, our guest before you, we interviewed Rick Collins. He's an attorney, but he does a lot of work in testosterone legally and scientifically. Um, he wrote a book called The Alpha the Alpha Male. This was like 10, 15 years ago. If he tried to write that book now, I'm not sure how it'd be received. But mm. a lot of the conversations we had actually dovetail with a lot of the conversations we Very had today. Well. Yeah. yeah, in terms Very of, well. you know, toxic masculinity, male privilege, and, you know, all this nonsense that's just being promoted by the media. So yep. like Tony said, I think, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we could talk about, you know, for a long time because there's so much to cover. And, uh, you know, I'm glad, you know, I found you on Twitter and you responded to one of my posts um, yep. because we definitely have to be- have you back on. If you ever have any new data on anything related to sex differences, you got to let me know because yep. that's the, that stuff is fascinating. And it's one of those areas in exercise science that a lot of people kind of stay away from. But I, I love that stuff. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And just uh, you're just like the time zone you're in. Your thinking's way ahead. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it and happy to come on uh, again sometime. Let's All talk right. again. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, James. All right. Thanks. Take care, guys.